Welcome to the Declaration Podcast. We want to thank you for joining us. We pray that today's message encourages you and blesses you. If you'd like to connect with us, please visit us at declaration.org. Speaking of giving, speaking of giving, uh, Christmas is typically known as the season of giving, right? Anybody heard that before? Somebody's like, no, I got the spiritual gift of receiving, y'all. Okay, so I know. But Christmas is typically known as the season of giving. So this morning, I'd like to to, to look at and take you to the story of the Magi in Matthew chapter 2. If you've got your Bible, why don't you go there with me? Matthew chapter 2. We're going to spend a little time there. Um, But... Uh, uh, well, let me say this. In, this. in this passage, what I want to do, I want to continue the conversation we began two weeks ago. We started this whole thing, this Noel series, by asking a question. Now, I didn't have the question at the time, but as God has continued to evolve this series, I realized we asked a question in week one. I was just going to tell you that we did and make you believe, oh, yeah, I remember that. You don't remember it, but it's a question that we asked, which was really, what are you thinking? That's really the question. What are you thinking this season? What are you thinking about this Christmas? Are you focused on your anxiety or are you focused on adoration? Now, I know Christmas is the season where typically this is the time that we really focus in and it's a season of adoration unto the Lord. However, I get it. I, go, I know what happens. Life gets busy. Man, you got to plan all the family stuff. You got to get the presents. You got to plan the menus. Before you know it, man, you are so bound up in anxiety. You, adoration what, Right? Is it the season of anxiety or adoration? What are you thinking about? Speaking of anxiety, everybody knows I love me a good meme every now and then, all right? Last year we did a whole thing on Christmas memes. I only have one for you, but I saw it this week and I thought it was great. Dear Santa, if you leave a new bike under the tree, I will give you the antidote to the poison I put in the milk. Signed, Timmy. (laughs) Yep. I think poor Santa might have had a little anxiety over that milk. I don't know, but um, seriously. So we saw in week one where where Mary could have easily chosen anxiety at the news that was unfolding and the reality of all that was going on um, around her and with her and the developing things that were happening inside of her. Um, We saw where scripture told us in verse 29 of Luke 1, she was greatly troubled at at what the angel was saying to her right there, Um, greatly troubled at the words and wondered what kind of greeting it might be. Instead, though, of allowing this news that she received from this angel Bringing her anxiety, she chose instead to turn that into adoration. And we see that in verses 46 and 47. Look at it. It says, Mary says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. See, she chose belief, unlike Zacharias, who struggled with unbelief of what the angel told him. She chose belief and preparation rather than unbelief and frustration. And can I just say this, because I've, I've, I've had a couple of conversations with a few of you throughout the week. I know that things happen sometimes in this season. Maybe you, you're, you're living life right now, and you're experiencing a sideswipe moment in your life. You didn't see it coming. Maybe it was news. Maybe something that took place, something that happens that, that, that has risen up that you didn't expect. And let me just encourage you. Man, choose, choose to focus on, focus your heart on adoration. Even in this, over anxiety. Focus your heart on adoration. 
Listen, stay deliberate about staring at Jesus and you will not hardly notice that distraction that's staring at you. Focus your heart on adoration. Choose adoration. I saw a post this last week on social media after preaching that week one. I saw this. A friend of mine posted this. Look at what she posted right here. It says, the answer to deep anxiety is the deep adoration of God. I thought, man, how, how appropriate and timely is that? It's true. It's true and good for us to consider this Christmas. What are we focusing on? What's our perspective? Especially when we consider the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus, which is why there's reason to celebrate at all. The birth, the news, the shout of joy, Noel. Then week two, if you were here last week, we asked the question, what are you seeking this season? What are you seeking this Christmas? We saw Simeon after 400 years of silence from God. He's, Simeon's asking, he's seeking consolation. He's seeking comfort. And then we saw Anna who is seeking redemption and she was seeking forgiveness. We saw God finally speak to Simeon after this, this 400 years of silence. And, and um, as he went seeking the Messiah just as God had promised. And God, God spoke to Simeon saying, before you, before you die, your very eyes will see Jesus the Messiah. And we learn that God's promise of comfort and hope and God's promise of forgiveness and redemption are all found in Jesus. And the answers that we long for, no matter what it is that you're longing for, searching for, seeking after, truly the answers will only be found in Jesus as we seek him. So today I want us to consider this idea of giving. What are we thinking? What are we seeking? What are we giving? What are we bringing? What are we bringing this season? So as we think about that, I want you to watch this maybe from a modern day perspective of one of the Magi, a wise man. So, so check out this video with me. God had been silent for 400 years. We knew because we were listening in a sense. My job, my job is to listen. You wouldn't call a person that talks a lot a wise man, would you? No, you'd call them many, many, many things, but a wise man wouldn't be one of them. My position is to look for signs everywhere. A star, for example. I can look at a star and watch it and wait and see what the star is trying to tell us. I read one time of a star that would announce a new king. And then one day, there it was, a beacon in the night, a star like, unlike any other star I'd ever seen before. And so, I followed it. Several of us, we followed this star. It was bizarre. The star would lead, it would move, and we would follow. Our journey took two years, and it led us to Judea. And then the star stopped. It just stopped. Shining down over this small cottage, our journey ended not at a palace for a king, but at a home for a peasant. This was it. I mean, we gathered our thoughts, we gathered our gifts, we did all that we could do to contain our emotion. And behind those doors was a new king. A king that could command the stars in the sky and yet chose to dwell among us. 
a king that spoke and the word became flesh. God was finished being silent. That night, we knelt. We bowed down before this baby boy. And each one of us laid gifts at his feet. We had to, we couldn't help it. 400 years of silence, broken by the cries of the Son of God. So in Matthew chapter 2, we begin, I'm going to be reading from the Amplified Version. It says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, um, Hebrews would call that Judah, in the days of Herod the king, Herod the great, Magi, wise men from the east, came to Jerusalem asking, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So just right there in the first two verses, we, we, we gather some information. We see a few things. Jesus had been born in Bethlehem. Um, Matthew says Bethlehem of Judea to distinguish it from other towns with the same name potentially. See, at this time, Israel's divided into four political districts and there's several lesser territories. And so most likely there were other cities with the same name, but Matthew qualifies it by saying of Judea. Specific location. We know at this point Herod is the king. Um, and we see the Magi, these wise men, not being from Israel, journeyed from the east, from the Parthia Empire, um, which we know now to be modern-day Iraq, Iran. Um, they traveled thousands of miles to Bethlehem, Jerusalem, which at this time was the seat of government for Herod. And they're seeking to see and worship the baby born, the Messiah, king of the Jews. Now, our traditional view of this story tells us that there were three wise men, right? Most likely because there were three gifts offered. But truthfully, we don't know the number, the, the quantity of how many of these magi truly took the long journey to see Jesus. Other important and interesting things to know about the Magi. These guys were known for a few things in the culture. They were known to be dream interpreters, some of them. They were considered foreign dignitaries, and they were well-known all throughout the eastern regions. Rising to power during the Babylonian and the Persian empires, they're noble. they were a noble class of intellects sought after for their wisdom. Um, they were so revered, they were called at times kingmakers because no one would be named king apart from their approval. They specialized in astronomy or astrology. So being that, they're always looking up at the stars, and it's fitting that God would actually speak to them through a star. Many feel the Magi's comments in verse 2 reflected a knowledge of Balaam's prophecy concerning a star, which we see in Numbers chapter, I think, 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I, I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise up out of Israel. This is a prophetic word. And, and many believe that the Magi knew about that, which is why it made the star even that much more significant when it appeared. Main point being here. Magi came searching for Jesus. The wise men came searching, seeking to see him and worship him. So this is the first thing that I hope that you'll take home with you today. Think about the, the, just the context of, of, of this journey that they took. We already knew it was, it was a lot of miles, right? It took a lot of time. Listen, these magi, these wise men were an unhindered audience. They were an unhindered audience. Now, what do, you, what do I mean by that? Here, here's what I mean. Nothing 
Nothing was going to keep them from being in the presence of Jesus. Nothing. Nothing was going to keep. There was no greater way to spend their time. There, there, was, there was no greater opportunity or obligation that they had before them. There was no distance too great. There was no journey too great that they would have to take. They were undeterred. They were an unhindered audience. Nothing would stand in the way from them standing in the presence of Jesus. Now, when Herod heard this in verse 3, he's disturbed. This is all in Jerusalem with him. Why was Herod disturbed? Why, why do we see this? A few things, four things in particular. Herod was not the rightful heir to the throne of David. Um, he was partly Jewish, but he actually descended from Esau, not Jacob. Um, there's, a, there's a verse in, in, in Scripture that just it, it confuses me. It baffles me because it says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. I don't understand that. But that's the, Herod, that's the line that Herod was from. Because of this, he wasn't exactly popular among Jewish people. In fact, he was actually hated by many and seen as an usurper. He was ruthless. He was suspicious because of his enemies. Um, Many feel like he'd become mentally unstable by this point in life. He was always concerned about overthrow. He was always concerned about a coup. He kept his enemies close to him. He kept his friends close. He, he, He watched everybody very, very suspicious. He didn't want the Jews to unite around a religious figure, especially a baby that was born, said to be the king, prophesied to be the king from the line of David. So yeah, he's a, little, he's a little troubled at this news. The wise men's news troubled Herod because he knew that the Jewish people expected the Messiah to come soon. According to Luke chapter 3, verse 15, look at that with me. It says, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John could possibly be this. Here, here, here's what's going on. They're waiting and watching. They're anticipating. They are expecting a Messiah to come. The promise had been there, and they are anxiously awaiting. That's what Advent is. It's the awaiting. It's the longing of the arrival. And so Herod knew that there's this expectation. He knew that there's this this anticipation. And the news from the wise men does not sit well with him. So what did he do? Back to Matthew, verse 4. So he calls together all the chief priests, the scribes of the people, and anxiously he asked them where the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed, was to be born. And they reply to him in verse 5, basically mimicking the words from the prophet Micah. They say, well, in Bethlehem of Judea, it's been, it's been written already. And then they basically just reiterate Micah chapter 5, verse 2, right here in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. They say, you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not in any way least among the leaders of Judah, for you shall call, come from, 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 sorry, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Same thing. Look, look at the Micah version now. But you, Bethlehem, through you, are, though you are small, among the clans of Judah, same as Judea, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So basically, they're just reiterating what Micah had said. Watch this. Some 700 years earlier, it was a prophecy. Where is this kid supposed to be born? Oh, man, that's easy. It's simple, bro. <laughs> Remember what Micah said 700 years ago? <laughs> This is exactly where he's going to be. So back to Matthew chapter 2, verse 7. So Herod secretly sends for the Magi and learns from them the exact time the star first appeared. Why? Because he had trouble. He had trouble in his mind and a problem in his hands. What is he going to do? So he makes a plan. He needs to be able to calculate when did that star first appear 
so that he could begin to calculate exactly what age this child is that he's looking for so that he can destroy him. That's what his thought process is. Verse 8. Then he sent them to Bethlehem after he talked to them, saying, hey, when did this first appear? Sends them to Bethlehem, saying, go and search carefully for the child. And when you found him, it's very important. He says, when you find him, I want you to report back to me so that I too may come and worship him. Now listen, though Herod was deceiving even to these wise men, his goal was not to adore this Messiah child. His goal was to annihilate him. That's what he was after. So he convinced the Magi to go search for and find where Jesus was and then report back to him, all while lying about his motives. Remember this, no matter what, no matter the distance that those wise men would travel, no matter the depth of Herod's deception, remember, they were an unhindered audience. So verse 9, after hearing from the king, they went their way, they continue on, and behold, a star which they had seen in the east went on before them, continually leading the way until it came and stood over the place where the young child was. Now I want you to imagine this moment. How long had this journey been? How many miles had they walked? It ain't like they could call an Uber and say, it's going to be a little while, brother. You know, I tip well. No, this has been a long journey. After all that they've had to endure, let's, def- let's go to Herod, see what he's... After, imagine this, after following a supernatural sign. I mean, these guys are used to staring at stars. They're used to the night sky. They know where every star is supposed to be. And then lo and behold, all of a sudden, this supernatural star appears. They remember from numbers, they remember this prophetic word about a star. They begin to follow the star. It takes them on a journey. And now all of a sudden, the star is fixed over a spot. And they know they've arrived. Wow. It says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy in verse 10. I mean, this star's movement had been constant. It had been visible to these men who, again, do nothing but study the stars. <laughs> By now, they followed the star across thousands of miles. They hadn't found the child in the palace in Jerusalem where they assumed or where they expected he would be. But, so they just wearily continue on their way only to once again follow this moving star. And there it is. It's fixed there. No wonder when they saw that the star had stopped, they're overwhelmed with joy. Their journey was complete. They had finally found the one they had been seeking and searching for. And then we get to verse 11, and I want you to see this with me. It says, and then after entering the house... Now, as I was reading and studying, I got to that verse, and I read that after entering the house, those four words, I was like, oh, man, because it hit me. And I want to tell you, this is what hit me, and I want you to hear this. See, it's, it's one thing for us to come to church, listen to me, but it's another thing to enter into the presence of God. So after they enter into the house, notice it does not say a manger or a stable. They see a child. Notice it does not say a baby or an infant. Showing a timeline has happened through this journey. And now by the time they arrive, Mary and Joseph have settled into Jerusalem. They're not in the stable anymore. They're into a house. And here's Jesus probably verging into the toddler years is when they arrive. So they enter into the house, and they see the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. This is the second thing I want you to see today. In these wise men, we not only see an unhindered audience, 
But we also see unashamed worship. Verse 11, they see him, they fall down and worship him. This word in the Greek is, is like prokus, uh, I'm sorry, proskuneo, proskuneo, meaning to bow down and to kiss. I read another definition of it that was kind of like, Ugh, but I get it, all right? It's like, like a dog licking his master's hand. That was the definition. To bow down and to kiss, to, to prostrate oneself, to reverence, to adore, to kiss the hand. Or I like this, this definition better. You've heard the song, uh, We Three Kings of, what is it? Orient are, right? The, thinking, thinking Asian culture here, especially the Persians, the, uh, the wise men, if you will. This is their definition. To, to fall upon the knees and touch the ground with the forehead as an expression of profound reverence. I love this mental imagery of they walk into the house, there is, there is Mary with Jesus, and they just immediately, wise men, they get on the ground, they get on their knees, and they just begin to get as low as possible, touching their forehead onto the ground, basically signifying, saying, there is none greater than you. I'm getting myself as low as I can before you, and you are high. Unashamed worship. They were unhindered audience and unashamed in their worship. And I just wonder, man, it made me stop to think about the questions that I'm asking you over the last few weeks and today. Would we say that we're an unhindered audience for the king? Are we offering unashamed worship to our king this Christmas? We continue on with verse 11. So after this takes place, they open their treasure chest as if that's not all, right? If there's, this is a great biblical reason why we offer to God even the things that he gives to us. See, there is nothing that God has not created. Am I right? Amen? God has created everything, yet they're still bringing the best of what they can find, and you're going to see it. This is a great biblical reason for why we, we bring our gifts to the Lord and we, we bring our offerings to God. After opening their treasure chest, they present to him. And I love treasure chest. Think about what this means. When you're a kid, did you, you know, Peter Pan, the whole deal. And always looking for the treasure chest. It's that, it's that, it's that full, overwhelmingly full chest of, of gold and treasure. Well, they open their treasure chest, meaning the thing that they're carrying that, that contains the most valuable things to them, their treasures. They open it and they present to Jesus gifts fit for a king, gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, gold. Again, a gift fitting a king, declaring king. Psalm 72, 15 says, long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. By giving him gifts of gold, only fitting for or symbolic of kingship, they were declaring Jesus to be king. Frankincense or just incense, glittering, odorous gum obtained from the, the bark of certain trees was a gift for deity. By giving him the gift of frankincense, it was signifying the offering of the incense of worship um, as unto God. They were also declaring him God, the king of kings. Isaiah 60, verse 6, and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. And I thought about that as we give our unashamed worship Man, I wish I'd have said this in the first service, but, you know, the, 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 aerobe, the, the, the fragrant aroma of worship, it's more than just our oil that we give. I've got in my pocket this little mixture of, of frankincense and myrrh, and I've been sniffing it all morning, just thinking about what must that room have smelled like. And I think about our heart unto the Lord, and when we give this unashamed worship, the fragrant aroma that he must smell from that heart of worship. 
myrrh, a valued spice and perfume. Psalm 45 eight says, all your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes of cassia from palaces adorned with ivory. The music of the strings make you glad. Also myrrh, significant to bring to Jesus in that it's also used for embalming. Thus, with the Magi bringing this as a gift, it's prophetic in nature that it's a gift Fit for a person who's going to die. The book of Mark um, 15, we, we know this from when Jesus was on the cross. They offer him wine mixed with myrrh, basically a numbing agent for him, but he did not take it. John chapter 19, 39, after Jesus had died and they were preparing his body for burial, look what it says. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds worth. Can I tell you something? Even by today's metrics, this little bottle of frankincense and myrrh is expensive, y'all. I don't know how many of you use Young Living. You know what I'm talking about. You're like, for that bottle, <laughs> 75 pounds. But in the beginning when he's a baby, we don't know the amount, but we know the heart by which it was given. It was the treasure. But it's also prophetic. See, the gifts chosen by the Magi to bring in the Messiah were to make a statement. They were significant. They were unselfish. These gifts were worthy of a king and they're what these wise men were bringing to give to Jesus. So in this act, right, in this act of, of these Gentile leaders, the, the, the picture is, is that we're seeing is the sum total wealth of the nations, which will someday be completely given to the Messiah, as we read in Isaiah, Zephaniah, and Haggai. So not only were these magi, an unhindered audience, meaning nothing would stand in the way from them seeing Jesus. Nothing would prevent them from the presence of God. Not only did they offer unashamed worship, bowing low in deep adoration and reverence, but also look at their unselfish giving. Gold, frankincense, myrrh, costly, significant, making statements of kingship, adoration, even prophecy. These wise men had obviously and carefully considered exactly what they would be bringing to Jesus. And look what happened next. And I just want to pause and say, Pastor Aaron and I were talking through this message this week. It kind of percolates all week, right? <laughs> and so we kept talking about some things. And, and, and I said, you know, I think I'm just going to preach 1 through 11 and we'll just leave it at the gifts. And then, and then something in me, God just said, no, no, that ain't finished. Do 12. So I'm going to do verse 12, okay? It says, though Herod had instructed them to find Jesus and report back to him of the whereabouts. Remember, uh, I want you to go find him. Come back to me. Look at what verse 12 says. And having been warned by God in a dream, and I love that right there. Now remember, the story goes, there were 400 years of silence. And now all of a sudden, there's all sorts of supernatural, just kinetic activity, if you will. They go and seek after Jesus. They get into the presence of Jesus, and then God gives them a dream. And he instructs him, don't go back to Herod. And so what does scripture say? It says, the Magi left for their own country by another way. And let me tell you what God said to me, the reason why I feel like God said, no, no, you need to preach this verse. This is what God said. When you seek Jesus, when you want to see, when you go after to see Jesus, blessed are those whose hearts are pure for they will see God, Matthew 5, 8. When you enter into the presence of Jesus like the Magi did, listen to me, God will meet us there. And you're going to leave a different way than you came. You, because when we are in the presence of Jesus, 
we may enter in one way, but we're going to leave totally different. And so I just want to read, Robert Weber once said this. He said, worship is a meeting between God and his people when the worshiper is brought into personal contact with the one who gives meaning and purpose to life. From this encounter, the worshiper receives strength and courage to live with hope in a fallen, broken world. See, these wise men brought extravagant and significant gifts to Jesus with nothing in the natural that pointed to who he was except for what they believed to be true. All they had was prophecy and this supernatural sign of a star. Pastor Aaron gave me this point, and it was such a great point. All they had was a promise yet to be realized and a supernatural sign that would lead them. They had everything in the natural that technically we have in the natural pointing to who Jesus is. Some might even say that we have more because we have the whole canon. But they still came. Unhindered, unashamed, and unselfish. And it just made me stop and ask myself, and I feel the need to ask you, with all this in mind, what are we bringing to Jesus this Christmas? What are we bringing to Jesus this season? Let's not approach the season for only what we can receive Let's not approach Jesus for only what he can give us. Let, this Christmas, let, let, let's not, let, let's, let me say this. Let's seek to bless him rather than seek his blessing, all right? What gifts are we bringing to Jesus this Christmas? I read an article from 2003, um, and at first I was like, uh, I don't have time to do that. But you know what? As, as I kept reading it, I was like, I think it, needs to, I think it needs to be read. I think it needs to be read right here. So let me read it for you. The article is appropriately entitled, What Gifts Would You Bring to Jesus? Wise men from the East brought baby Jesus gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What gifts would you have brought? Well, Perry, age 11, says, I would give Jesus a lot of money, a big old sheep, and a balloon that reads, it's a boy. (laughs) The writer of the article says, Perry, I don't know about balloons, but I suspect that, that there were more than a few trumpets blown in heaven when Jesus was born. At least one angel could not contain his joy because he says, I bring good news of great joy that will be for all people, the angel announced to some shepherds. Jordan, age six, says, well, if I had been one of those wise men, I would have brought a pillow and a blanket because Jesus might have got cold. The wonder of Christmas lies in the humility of the Savior's birth. Think about it. An unsanitary barn would not be the, the first choice of any mother bringing her child into the world. Jesus, the Lord of the universe, had to stoop very low to enter into our world through this door. Is God telling us something more than the fact that there was no room for Joseph and Mary in the end? God goes where he's wanted. You'll see it all through scripture, writes Pastor Joe McKeever. When you enter a city, Jesus told his disciples, whoever does not receive you or heed your words, shake the dust off of your feet. They were not to give God's truth to hostile or disrespectful people. Tell me if this is not the most amazing picture in the Bible. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, humbly asking us to receive him. He didn't force himself on anyone, but goes into homes and hearts where he is made welcome. Well, Lori H. 7 says, I'd bring him a friend because friends are fun to play with. (laughs) Jesus loves friends. He often ate with people whom the religious leaders shunned. He became known as the friend of sinners. Hunter, age six, says, I would have brought a dog to Jesus because he needed protection. <laughs> Baby Jesus did need protection. 
Why? Because King Herod wanted to be sure that any rival kings were dead, even baby ones. So he told the wise men to tell him where they found Jesus. In a dream, God warned the wise men, and they secretly went home without telling Herod. When Herod discovered he had been tricked, he went ballistic. In his frustration, he ordered all the children in Bethlehem who were two years or younger to be killed. An angel, however, warned Joseph and Mary to flee to Egypt with baby Jesus. Matthew, age seven, said, I'd bring Jesus a lamb because it's a special kind of animal. It's a picture of Jesus. He's the shepherd, and he loves sheep. Matthew, you're probably aware that thousands of lambs were sacrificed during the Passover feast. During the original Passover in Egypt, the angel of death passed over each Jewish home that had the lamb's blood on its door frames. John the Baptist called Jesus the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Kevin, age 10, said, if I could give Jesus a present, I'd give him as much gold as I could find, but I can't give him anything to pay for him dying for me. In the ancient East, you always brought a gift when approaching a superior. Gold has long been a precious metal of royalty. Frankincense was one of the spices in the mixture of incense burned daily in Israel's temple, and myrrh was used to anoint the body of Jesus for burial. Many have seen the royalty, the deity, and the death of Jesus in the gifts brought by the wise men. Chelsea, age eight. I'd bring him a gold crown because I love him, and he is the king, says Chelsea. What gift would you bring to the king of kings? Did anybody grow up watching the Charlie Brown Christmas special? (laughs) Self-admittedly, that soundtrack is my jam, (laughs) y'all. I love that stuff. Um, There's an episode of the comic strip Peanuts where Charlie Brown cracks open his piggy bank and he says to Lucy, he goes, look, I got $9.11 to spend on Christmas presents. As I read that, I was like, Charlie, I feel your pain. (laughs) Lucy, not impressed, says, you can't buy something for everyone with $9.11, Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown says, oh, yeah? Well, I'm going to try. Then Lucy continues, there's sure going to be cheap presents. Charlie pauses for a moment and then says with absolute conviction, nothing is cheap if it costs you everything you have. (laughs) So on this very first Christmas that we celebrate in just a few days, God gave us all that he had, himself in the person of Jesus. 33 years later, Jesus would give us all that he had, his very life. And now it's our turn to give a gift to Jesus. And it should likewise cost us all that we have. Would you close your eyes? Can we pray together? And I just want to start there. This whole message is, what are you bringing to Jesus this Christmas? But truth be known, God is the one that gave us the example of giving gifts in the first place. And the best gift that he can give us is the gift of Jesus. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never received the gift of Jesus. This is different from church or religion. This is God wants to have a relationship with you. And the only way that he can have this friendship and this relationship is when you... Believe in Jesus and receive this gift of Jesus and invite him to take over your life. So this morning, maybe you're here and, again, different than church and religion, I'm going to invite you to ask yourself a question. Have I ever received the gift of Jesus? Have I ever invited him into my life? And if you want to do that this morning, I want to help you do that.
I'm going to pray a prayer. There's nothing magical about it. It's just us confessing our need and our desire for Jesus. And I want to help you with it, maybe help you give you some words for that. And so if you would like to receive the gift of Jesus this morning, and what a privilege for me to be able to pray with you. Would you pray after me, maybe in your heart or even out loud if you feel led, if you're comfortable with that. But if you'd like to receive Jesus this morning, maybe you would say, Jesus, I believe you. I want to receive this gift of life through you. Thank you for coming as a baby for me. Thank you for dying on a cross for me. Would you forgive me, Jesus? Would you make me brand new? Would you help me to learn to walk with you daily? Thank you for making me a friend of God. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for making me new. Would you come into my life and help me serve you for all my days? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now with your eyes still closed.